I want to speak today about identity. Identity. I believe that you need to live out of a strong, established identity. And that is my exhortation to you. Live out your life on the basis of a strong and established identity. Now, when I was a philosophy student at Wheaton College and was as confused as could be, and I did study Confucianism and then Confusionism (laughs) in college, I studied one philosopher I studied. His name was Jean-Paul Sartre. How many ever heard of him? Wow, this is great. You know, he had a philosophy that has been disastrous for the world. Uh, when I had a trip to Paris, I went by his uh, cafe where he used to sit with the students. Uh, and uh, I, I actually prayed uh, that God would destroy what was coming out of that place on the streets of Paris in 1997. Because um, when I read his book, Being and Nothingness and His Philosophy, he actually said there is no such thing as an essential identity that is given to human beings. That we're all just kind of blank slates and we're kind of like these, this empty ego of radical freedom that floats around and that we can choose to be anything at any time that we want to be. A good man can choose to be a criminal. A criminal can choose to be a good man, whatever good and evil is. So there is no essential essence. In Sartre, existence precedes essence, which means there is no established essence for you, either as a man or as a woman. And by the way, we see the effects of this in our society right now as all creation distinctions between men and women, homosexuals, heterosexuals, boys and girls, is all broken down because you can be anything. There's a school in Iowa, I think it's in Iowa, where some really nutty people got in charge of the school and they decided in the elementary school that they're not going to call boys boys anymore and girls girls anymore because it predisposes them to fix gender roles and they don't want to do that. Did you hear about this? Pretty amazing, huh? Well, what happens is if you believe this philosophy that there's no creation essence given to us, then you have identity crisis all the time because you're really a nothing. Nothing defines you. But in the Bible, identity begins with the statement that God created us in his image. He created us to rule wisely in his stead and he's given all us all the capacity to be his vice regents on this earth. So we have moral emotions inside for good and evil. We have intelligence we have emotion, we have creativity, we have all of the giftings that come from God that make us like unto God to rule wisely in his stead. So it's much truer from a biblical point of view to say that all men are created equal in terms of value as in the image of God, like the Declaration of Independence says, and that we are endowed by our creator. Isn't that a wonderful statement in the Declaration of Independence? We're endowed by our creator. And if you lose the sense of that, you lose your identity. But identity in the Bible, beyond that basic statement of being created in the image of God, begins with corporate definitions. And I want to explain this to you. 
and then we'll talk about the three points today, the identity of the Jewish people, the identity of the church, and your individual identity. Those are the three points I'm going to make as I encourage you to live out of a strong identity, and that will help you succeed in life. But first, going back to this issue, in most peoples of the earth, most primitive peoples, most tribal peoples, individual identity is not important. How many know that? It's the identity of the tribe, the people that you come from, and the importance of the individual is very secondary. Identities are, first of all, corporate, who you are as part of the tribe. And it's only from the Renaissance, by the way, and then on into the 18th century in the Enlightenment, that the idea of individual identity became so important that we almost forgot about our identities together as peoples or what's called corporate identities. But in the Bible, there's an amazing balance between the importance of our corporate identity as peoples, as nations, as tribes, and the Bible uses those terms, and individual identity, which you really see coming out in Ezekiel chapter 18, where it talks about the individual before God who can break from even a a bad corporate identity and be responsible individually for his own sin and righteousness. That's a biblical concept that you really are not going to find in other uh, religions and other tribes at that time. Ezekiel 18 is an amazing chapter. But it never goes so far in the Bible as the Enlightenment so that you now can define yourself apart from others. As a matter of fact, who we are is defined by our relationship to others. You can't put a baby in an isolation chamber and him grow into anything because that baby is going to grow up and be defined by who he is in regards to his parents and his teachers and his siblings. I came to understand this as a young man when I was teaching philosophy. One day as I was teaching philosophy, I was teaching a particular aspect of the history of philosophy, and I said, I sound just like Dr. Arthur Holmes, my professor at Wheaton. He's coming out of me. I felt he was coming out of me. And then when I was teaching another subject, I sounded just like Professor Stuart Hackett. I couldn't believe it. And then when I was teaching on the theory of knowledge, I sounded just like Dr. David Wolfe. It was pretty scary. And I said to myself, who am I? I'm nothing. I'm just a composite of these guys. And then a better thought came to me. The thought came to me, Well, yeah, but you've integrated those three guys into yourself in a way that nobody else has. And that my identity is something that isn't fixed just when I'm a child. My identity is being developed and is being grown. It's a growing thing. As I get older and older. And that I am who I am by those who imparted into my life, and then I integrate their impartation into the uniqueness that is me, because there's nobody who integrated Holmes, Hackett, and Wolf into their lives like I integrated them into my life. And this relates to spiritual fathers. One time the Lord gave me this revelation 
uh, in a time of prayer that was awesome. And he said, what do you have that you did not receive? And I realized that who I am is very much connected to wonderful people that had impartation into my life. Now, I happen to have good parents, but I had good relatives, more on the Norwegian side. The Jewish side, they were all fighting with each other for the money of the family, <laughs> and they all ended up breaking up and hating each other, and that was not too happy a thing. But, uh, you know, that's the way it went in those days, you know, from the uh, New York side of the family. But, uh, at any rate, I, had, I didn't get very good impartation from there, but I did from my dad, who was a wonderful guy. But I had the impartation of parents, when my dad died, I had spiritual fathers. I had my spiritual father at Wheaton. I had professors. And, and the Lord began to see that who I was, my identity and my calling, came from good people and that I chose really good people to walk with. And it helped form my identity. All right, so that's just an introduction. That's just an introduction. I want to talk about corporate identities first, and I want to talk about first your identity in relationship to Israel and in relationship to the church. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we read about the beginning of the identity of Israel, the Jewish people. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, uh, Jewish identity begins with the call of a man. Now, Abraham already had an identity. He was the son of his father, Terah. And if you read in chapter 11, you'll read that Terah was already being pulled, drawn by God into the land of Canaan. That's how you say it. You say Canaan, but you know, in Hebrew it's really Canaan. The promised land. He was being drawn. For some reason or other, he stopped along the way. Settled in Haran. But Abraham is really called to continue the journey of his father. Now, I believe if you study the stories of the patriarchs and you realize that these are the descendants of Shem, who was the son of Noah that was especially blessed, and that the redemption of the world is to come through the line of Shem, you read about that after the flood, that Terah is in the line of Shem, and that these were a people that, although they were falling into idolatry, yet preserved more of the truth from Noah than anybody else on earth, so that Abraham's choice was not in a vacuum, as is usually taught. It's why the patriarchs wanted to send their kids back to their relatives to get their wives, because they were less corrupted. So Abraham continues that journey, and he goes to the promised land, and God promises a, a, a land. Now, it's a very interesting thing when you think about Jewish identity and you think about nations or peoples. If you're going to have an identity as a nation or a people, there are three things that are very important as part of a nation. Number one is their language. And we're going to be given a language called Hebrew. 
Now, some people believe that Hebrew was the original language of Adam and Eve. I can't prove that. I, you know, I think it may be somewhat mythological, but if you believe that, I mean, there's no reason that you can't believe that. It doesn't look like in the history of nations that we can prove that, but Israel was given a language, the Hebrew language. Secondly, they were given a land, and thirdly, they were given a culture. Language, land, and culture form the identity of peoples. And it's a very interesting thing that Jewish people preserve their language in the synagogue even when they are in the diaspora. And they preserve the idea of land because the land was in us and we kept talking about the return to our promised land as part of our identity. So land was part of our identity. But the biggest part of our identity was culture. And culture has to do with the stories people tell about their origins. Most tribes, most people have stories that they tell about their origins, about their religions, about their gods. And they may, beyond telling those stories, think they have a purpose. But the idea of future purpose as part of identity is something that really comes into Israel on a whole different level and wasn't true of the other nations. The idea that identity is formed out of having a future purpose. So here we have a culture that has to do with origins in Abraham, that has to do with land and language, that also has to do with future purpose, and that the future purpose and the origins together constitute a pattern of life that Israel lives, and the pattern of life that Israel lives is also part of her identity. Now, God is seeking to create a very strong identity in a people. It's why, despite all the vicissitudes of history, we still exist. And that identity is formed out of a very unique history, which we read about in the book of Exodus, Namely, God brought the family of Israel, Jacob, down into Egypt. They became slaves, so they have this common memory of being slaves in Egypt. And then he raises up a deliverer whose name is Moses. And Moses uh, brings the prophetic word with his brother Aaron about plagues. And he seeks to free the people from their slavery as an instrument of God. And finally, Israel is delivered. And we read in Exodus chapter 12 about the extraordinary Passover and the Exodus. And then we read these words um, uh, in the book of Exodus uh, in verse 24 concerning every year having a Passover Seder. And he said, uh, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Lord's Passover, a sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed their heads and worshipped, and Israel did just what the Lord commanded. Now, you will find that a good part of Jewish identity has to do with the issue of memory. The identity of a people and the identity of an individual is very much tied up in their 
memory. And God establishes the strongest involvement to produce a history of his own acts in the midst of Israel as part of their memory. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then God gives a calendar of feasts where they would remember that the Lord is the one giving them the harvest. But the feast remember, uh, the feast bring to remembrance the historic events. The dwelling in the desert when the people were unfaithful and living in tents in the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. We already talked about Passover. But then there is a Sabbath day which is a weekly memorial of the Exodus and an extraordinary pattern of life that was unlike any other people, that this is a people that is freed from bondage and therefore they're given one day off per week in uh, remembrance of that Exodus and to know that they are a freed people. And then the Feast of Shavuot, which the rabbis tell us is the time of the giving of the law. And uh, then we have the Feast of Sukkot, which I mentioned which eventually celebrates the coming of the kingdom of God to the whole earth. God gives Israel a way of life, which is the highest civilized way of life, according to Torah, that any uh, nation ever had. The most humane law that had ever been seen on the face of the earth since the nations fell away from God. But he also gives Israel a future purpose Because as he said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Israel has an identity that is connected to a future purpose to bring the nations back to the blessing of God. And that statement in Genesis chapter 12, 3, uh, 3, that in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed, is a statement about Israel being used as an instrument to bring the nations back to God so that they could experience the blessing of God. We read about this future purpose again and again in the prophets, that Israel will bring the nations to birth, that this is their calling, that they had failed in it, but yet God will use them as an instrument to see the nations come back to God. And we see them as a witness people because God says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, concerning Israel's uh, way of life, observe them carefully, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them in the way that the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to them? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I am setting before you this day? God places Israel in a little piece of land that is the crossroad of empires, one of the most difficult pieces of land to control because it's the center of trade routes and every other empire would want to control it. And they're taught that they are to trust God for their defense and that if they would walk in God's ways that they would be unconquerable. So they are a witness people to bring the nations back to God. These things remember, these things of remembrance and purpose always are central 
to Jewish identity. And we fall away from it sometimes. We, we become myopic and we become self-focused. But this is the identity of Israel. It continues to be the identity of Israel. And Paul says in Romans chapter eleven twenty nine that it is an irrevocable calling and Jewish believers in Jesus are the saved remnant of Israel. We continue to be part of our people and that irrevocable calling because we are a nation in the midst of the nations that represent God and his power, that represent God and his standards to the nations. Even when we fall away, even an atheist Jew, when he says, I am a Jew, causes people to remember Mount Sinai and God giving his covenant and Abraham. So even an atheist Jew is a contradiction in terms because by the very declaration that he is a Jew, he becomes a witness. Isn't that amazing? Now, there was an understanding of eschatology, or the last days, in the first century. We're going to transition now to the identity of the church. And in that understanding of the last days, it was understood that Israel had yet failed in its purpose. In Isaiah, we read, we have not yet brought the nations to birth. We brought forth wind. I think that's in chapter 27. 26, 27, right in that realm, you can find it. I don't want to take the time to try to look for it right now. And the prophets bring forth the revelation of the future king that is to come, the Messiah, and he will enable Israel to fulfill her destiny to bring the nations to the knowledge of God. He will deliver Israel from oppression and bring the nations to the knowledge of God and there will be world peace. Israel and the nations will be one under the rule of Messiah. That's what we get largely from the book of Isaiah, but you find it in other texts as well. But Isaiah is magnificent on this. And that became a very strong hope in the first century, that the Messiah would come, deliver us from the oppressions of the Romans, and then fulfill the hope of the prophets that Israel, out of having a mighty deliverance, would then be the instrument with the Messiah to see the nations come into the kingdom of God. Pretty exciting hope. This is reflected in the prayer of Zacharias at the birth of John the Immerser, John the Baptist. It's reflected in other New Testament texts. But then when we read about the life of Jesus it gets really strange because instead of delivering Israel from the Romans, he has a wonderful teaching ministry. He has a wonderful healing ministry. And in the healing ministry, he delivers the poor from their poverty. He delivers the mourning from their grief. There is a great reversal because the kingdom of God breaks into this realm. And what Jesus is saying here concerning the kingdom is because I've arrived, the kingdom has come, and if you attach to me, you are already entering into the kingdom of God. So the age to come has broken into this age with the coming of Jesus. Well, that was all good and well during his life, but even the apostles, the disciples, were wondering, when's Jesus going to get with the program and throw off the Romans? We come up to Jerusalem, 
they heard these statements about being crucified, they probably thought they were metaphorical because as they enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they figure, well, now we're going up to take over. He cleans out the temple. This looks pretty good. This is the guy that, you know, walked through the crowd. They couldn't, uh, uh, they couldn't destroy him. He was invincible. So they were expecting that now was the time to overthrow the, 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 the Sadducees and their false government in collaboration with Rome. Now is the time to see Israel delivered. And instead of seeing Israel delivered, the one who brought the kingdom in that stage is crucified. The disciples, despite Jesus' teaching, were really not expecting him to be raised from the dead. Were they? When you read the story about where they were at before the resurrection, they were in fear. They were not expecting it. But then he's raised from the dead. And when he's raised from the dead, he starts to appear to them, to teach them about the kingdom. And then, 40 days after his resurrection... He's back on the Mount of Olives again. He had been on the Mount of Olives when they came in that first time on Palm Sunday. Now they have a resurrected Lord and Messiah leading them. They're standing there on the Mount of Olives with him, and they say in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is this it? Are we going up now to take over and fulfill Israel's destiny? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Which the Father himself holds within his own sovereignty. That's really what he's saying there. But you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then, lo and behold, he's taken up into the clouds, and they're standing up watching. They're going, I'm sure with their mouths open. He says, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And instead of that, he's taken up. And then the angel says to them, with little empathy, Why are you standing gazing up into heaven? What would you have done? This same Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come in like manner as you have seen him go. So they obey. They go back to the city. They hang out in the upper room. And then on the day of Pentecost, I believe they went up to the temple, to Solomon's portico where they met. And when they were in the house, the temple, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And then thousands gathered and heard the gospel and came in to the baptism of the Holy Spirit on that day after they were baptized in water. So what is going on here? We get the identity of Israel. We understand their memory. We understand their pattern of life. We understand their purpose. But now you've got this growing movement of Jewish followers of Jesus And they begin to develop a theology that's not right. The theology they develop is that if we get Israel to bow the knee to Jesus, 
Then he will come back and deliver us from the Romans, and then we will fulfill our destiny as a people. Peter says in Acts chapter 3 something was true, but he didn't get the timing. And you have to understand what was not correct in their understanding is not something that they taught, but it was something that was in attitude. Peter says to an all-Jewish audience in Acts chapter 3, repent that times of restoration may come from the presence of the Lord. Restoration is tikkun, and tikkun is the name of our ministry from Acts 3 as you translate it into, Israel, uh, into Hebrew. He, he must remain in heaven until the times of the restoration of all things, spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began. So therefore, the issue is, to a Jewish audience, repent that God might send Jesus. You get this understanding that when the Jewish people repent and come to Jesus, it will be the restoration of all things. And that is correct theology. Jesus himself said, speaking of Jerusalem, you will not see him again until you come to, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In, Ro- in Romans chapter 11, Paul says, what will their full acceptance be but life from the dead? Romans eleven fifteen. So we know that this idea that The second coming is connected to the Jewish people coming to know Jesus. Whether before, simultaneous, together, however you want to put it together, Jewish people coming to Jesus is connected to the second coming. This is why Pope Benedict said to us when we met with him some years ago, if you people are who you say you are, the second coming of Jesus is nearer than we thought. But this just had to do with bringing the Jewish people to the Lord. Did you ever notice that in the book of Acts, there was no mission to the Gentiles until chapter 10? And the mission to Cornelius was not a mission that Peter took upon himself. He only did it because he had this supernatural vision of sheets coming down from heaven with unclean food because to him, to go to be with Cornelius, even though he was a God-fearer, would make him unclean. And God says, don't call what God has cleansed unclean. And then the people come from Cornelius' house and Peter goes up there and while he's preaching the message, before he even gets them into the water, they get the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, who can forbid water seeing these have received like gift as us? But what he was really saying is, Get them into the water quick. They've already got the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And when Peter came to Jerusalem and explained this to the disciples, they were not in favor. They thought Peter had missed it, that he had compromised the direction that they were to take in winning the Jewish people to the Lord and had gone over to the Gentiles and that this was going to hinder things. And Peter told the story and he said, Who was I that I could resist the Holy Spirit? Then there was a scattering in the persecution. People went to Antioch and some of the believers shared the gospel with Gentiles and for the first time you had Gentiles coming to know the Lord in an explicit kind of way and making up a congregation of Jew and Gentile together in Antioch 
And, and, and uh, now Barnabas goes and gets Paul, and you begin to see the hint in these passages because previously Paul had been converted in Acts chapter 9, and he is prophesied over by Ananias and told that he is going to bring one that will not only bring the gospel to the Jews, but Gentiles. And now all of a sudden you've got a new reality. You have a fellowship of Jews and Gentiles and you've got to figure out what is the identity of this new reality which we call the church. It actually is happening before it's defined. Now, I haven't talked about individual identity hardly at all. We talked about the corporate identity of Israel. But now we've got to talk about the corporate identity of the church. Because what the church was, was difficult to define and understand. What is this thing? So there's controversy about it. great water here. Midwestern Wisconsin water. It's the best water in the world. Brought to you by Governor Scott Walker. Now, The Shammite rabbis taught that the only way a person could be saved, these were the Shammite Pharisees, and these were the ones that Jesus was mostly in the controversy with, because they were the dominant form of the Pharisees in the first century. They taught the only way that Gentiles can be saved is if they convert to Judaism. The men have to be circumcised. The women have to be baptized. They have to totally convert to Judaism. There was another school of Judaism at that time that didn't believe that. They thought the Gentiles could be saved if they would just renounce idolatry and come to God and follow the universal laws of the Old Testament, which were later called the Noachide laws in the second century. They were the tolerant rabbis. They actually took over in the second century. The Shamites lost out. But in the first century, they were the majority. So when Pharisees came to know the Lord... They were likely to be Shamites. So one begins to get a picture of what was going on in the mission of Paul because as Paul and Barnabas go out and then Paul and Silas and they're winning all these Gentiles to the Lord after they preach in the synagogue, all these Shamite believers, people that came out of that Pharisaic school would dog their steps and say, unless you are circumcised and keep the whole law of Moses, you can't be saved. And that produces the controversy in Acts chapter 15. And Paul had no little argument with them, we read. And they went up to Jerusalem to decide the issue as to whether or not Gentiles needed to convert to Judaism to be saved. That was the essential issue. Peter and Paul testify in unity that the people who they brought the gospel to were baptized in the Holy Spirit without having converted to Judaism. Do you understand that one of the essential foundations as to why 
Gentiles do not have to convert to Judaism to be saved is because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the signs and wonders and speaking in tongues prove to the apostles that it was not God's intention for them to need to become Jews to be saved. Do you ever think about how essential the baptism in the Holy Spirit is here in these texts? It kind of goes over the minds of people, but it's just so foundational. So actually, they tell this story about Gentiles being baptized in the Holy Spirit as a proof against the circumcision party from the Shamite Pharisees. But then James stands up, and I'm telling you, most commentators, most preachers do not understand what James is saying here. And by the way, his name would be Jacob, except that King James wanted somebody in the Bible to have his name. Before the King James Bible, it was Jacob. Verse 13, Yaakov spoke up, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this as it is written. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will be re- rebuild and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the nations, Gentiles, who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for all the ages. Now I want to explain to you what James is saying. If you turn to Amos chapter 9, the passage that he's quoting, what he's saying, excuse me, what Amos 9 is saying is that the day is coming when David's full intent will be restored. Amos was already prophesying the fall of David's tent, namely that Israel would not be ruled by a normal Davidic uh, line of descent, which of course was the case after the Babylonian captivity. But he says that David's full intent which I think is mostly his rule, not worship in the tabernacle of David, would be restored. It's the restoration of the government of David in the Messiah. And when the government of David is restored in the Messiah, then the nations would come to the knowledge of God and they would be drawn out of the restoration of the tabernacle of David. Once again, the messianic role that we have in mind here, that Messiah brings Israel to fulfill its role in bringing the nations to the knowledge of God. But when you read Amos, you realize that this is an age-to-come prophecy. How is he quoting this age-to-come prophecy to settle the issue right then and there about the gospel going forth to the nations? And here's the key. See, Jacob understood that Jesus brought a different understanding of the kingdom, that the kingdom just doesn't come all at once at the end of the age, but it's going to come in an already not yet way. Jesus already told this. He said, go tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the gospel is preached to the poor, and blessed are those who are not offended at me. Why, why would they be offended? Because he didn't bring deliverance from the Romans. He didn't completely fulfill the hope of the prophets of the worldwide kingdom of peace and order. 
but instead he brought the kingdom in an already not yet way, in a way that was a reality, but not yet in its totality. He brought the kingdom as a growing thing, a kingdom that would be extended over the world through the preaching of the word, the sowing of the seeds, and the four soils that would receive it at different levels. He brought the kingdom as planting uh, wheat, and that the wheat would grow along with the tares. He brought the kingdom as leaven in the lump of dough, and it would eventually permeate the dough. He brought the kingdom in a way that it would be a mustard seed. It would begin small and then grow into the largest plant in the garden. So Jesus taught them that the kingdom was an already not yet growing thing, so that the kingdom was here. It was a reality, and it was eventually going to take over the whole earth at the time of the second coming. Yaakov perceives that if the kingdom has come, Not just in the future second coming is it appropriate for the nations to come to the knowledge of God, but in the already not yet kingdom, because Jesus is the Messiah and has restored already David's fallen tent, it's appropriate now for Gentiles to come. So this is another age-to-come thing that is breaking into this world, namely the Gentiles are coming to the knowledge of God. There's so much in that little text. But it is the Apostle Paul who really defines for us what this thing is called the church, which is not the New Testament word for it, actually. Uh, but, you know, it comes across into the Germanic and in the English. But it's ecclesia, which is from the Hebrew word kahilah, which is congregation of God. And he tells us this about the nature of the identity of the church and of Christians. He says in verse 11 of Ephesians 2, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Messiah, excluded from citizenship in Israel or the commonwealth of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Wait a minute. That's what we were before. Now he's saying that what's true now is the opposite. So we would now say, we are not separated from Messiah. We have a kind of citizenship in Israel, or the commonwealth of Israel. We're no longer foreigners to the promise, but we have hope, and we have God in the world. Now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Messiah. For he is our peace who has made the two one, Jew and Gentile one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. That is, the commandments and regulations that required us to be separated and not in fellowship with one another. And he has in this to create one new man out of the two making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them through the cross. Verse 19, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, who are God's people, the Jewish people, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Messiah, Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. 
And in him you are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Romans chapter 11 tells us about the identity of the Gentiles in the body. And this is how he describes it. He says in verse 17, You, a wild shoot, from a wild olive tree that is, have been grafted in among the others and you share in the nourishing sap from the olive tree. Now, verse 24, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to a nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? All right, now let's get a hold of the identity of church. The one new man does not mean that we become a homogenized new reality so that Jews are no longer Jews and Gentiles are no longer Gentiles. The analogy of the two becoming one is the analogy like marriage where the husband and the wife become one together because they enter into a mutually blessed fellowship with each other. And his understanding of the nations is that the nations are wild olive trees. Why are they wild? Because they worship other gods. They don't know the God of Israel. They are into magic and into oppression. But now, when a person comes to Yeshua, they're taken from the wild olive tree and they're grafted into the cultivated olive tree. Before the New Testament, the olive tree, the people of God, is the Jewish people. Israel is the olive tree before the coming of the New Testament. But with the coming of the New Covenant, now that olive tree has people from the wild olive trees grafted into it. So the people of God expands to include Gentiles who come to Jesus, and now they are in part grafted in part of that olive tree. That means that when Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, they become part of this one new man fellowship, but this one new man fellowship is rooted in and corporately tied to Israel. The identity of the church is an expanded Israel without displacing ethnic Israel. It's an expanded people of God rooted in ancient Israel, but because we become one with Messiah Jesus, we become one with the saved remnant of Israel. But Paul says of the saved remnant of Israel, they are the first fruits that sanctify the whole. And because church is that reality of Jew and Gentile, but the Gentiles have now become attached to Jesus and the saved remnant of Israel, and the saved remnant of Israel is attached to the larger nation that's become sanctified, the church is, as to its reality, an Israel-connected thing. It's a Jewishly-connected reality. 
and the destiny of the church is connected to the destiny of Israel. Hence, Paul can say salvation has come to the Gentiles for the purpose of making Israel jealous because when Israel is fully accepted, it will mean life from the dead. That's life from the dead for all of us. So therefore, this life from the dead that we seek is connected to Israel coming to Jesus so that we can all experience life from the dead. Hence, the destiny of the church is tied to the destiny of Israel. Wow. So we're in this dialogue with the Catholics. One of, one of the great things about the Catholics, and there are a lot of things that are not great about the Catholics, I understand, I'm not a Catholic. If I thought that everything was great, I'd be a Catholic, and I'm obviously not a Catholic. That is a Roman Catholic. They have absolutely repudiated the idea that the church has replaced Israel. They declare that Israel, the Jewish people, are God's elect people. And they have declared that Israel coming to recognize Jesus will be the climax of this age and will lead to the age to come. Right there in the catechism, every Catholic is supposed to believe this, although they mostly don't even know about it. And you can look it up in paragraph 674 of the New Roman Catholic Catechism. But as we were talking to these Catholics, we said, but you know, you've got a problem. And they said, what's, what's wrong with our doctrine? We said, what's wrong with your doctrine is you see the church as something separate from Israel. It was launched out of Israel, but you don't understand your identity as still a reality connected to Israel and its destiny. And we shared these passages with them, and we said... The church is as to its reality an Israel-connected, an Israelitish reality without requiring the Gentiles be circumcised. They're still part of their nations as well. And when these divines, cardinals and theologians saw this, the Holy Spirit came in the room and they sat in stunned silence because they saw, in spite of the Palestinian issues and the Arab-Jewish war, that the destiny of the church was tied to the destiny of Israel and that they were corporately tied to the Jewish people. So when you define yourself as a Christian and you define your identity from your corporate connectedness to the church, you're defining your identity as a reality that is corporately connected to the Jewish people. Who are you? I am part of the church. I am part of the temple of God that Jesus created. I'm part of the reality of the people who Jesus died to save. But as that reality called church that I am part of. Church defines who I am. That's why the idea that you can be an individual believer apart from commitment to the church is baloney. Your identity is as tied to a people. You are tied to the church expressed in local gatherings. But when you define your reality as part of the church, this is part of how you define yourself as an individual, as part of the church, you now define yourself as part of a reality that's tied to Israel and its destiny. Otherwise, you have an identity crisis. You don't get it right. Your identity is tied to the ultimate salvation of this people, which is tied to the nations coming to the knowledge of God. Now, 
The Bible is full of statements that are also statements of individual identity. And I just, I'm going to close with these, but I want to say, so there's the identity of the church, Israel, there's the identity of the church, and they're overlapping and intertwined because the Jewish believers are part of Israel and part of the church, and they tie us both together. But then in 2 Corinthians 5, I want to read this about your identity. You know, when I go to sleep at night and I wake up in the morning, I don't first think about the fact that I'm a Jew. It's important, but it's second in my mind, not primary. What I most think about is God and Jesus and who I am in him. Isn't that interesting? That's my first thought when I wake up and my first thought when I go to sleep. Because this is what the New Testament says about us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled to us through Messiah and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In this one verse is your identity. You are now no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are a new creation who live in a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And you now redefine your identity radically. So what you were before is not lost. The bad things drop away. The good things are, re- are retained and redeemed. But the center now of your identity is Jesus. He is the center of who you are. And that you are a new creation and through the Holy Spirit he lives in you and you are now the temple of God. So you have all these statements about who you are. You are somebody who's died in Messiah and risen again from the dead in him through the waters of baptism. And in him you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So you are a blood-bought, baptized in the Spirit personality who has a divine purpose, which is the ministry of reconciliation. You have been, indeed, raised with him, Ephesians 2.5, and are now seated with him in heavenly places. You don't see it with your physical eye. But you have an identity in Jesus. You might still be a German. You're still an American that has an identity based on our common life out of many one as the Founding Fathers said. You might have an identity as an Irishman, an identity as a Chinese person, an identity as an African-American, and all those things are fine, but they have to get put in their place and given back to you after death and resurrection because the center of your life now is that you are a new creation in Jesus and he lives in you. You've died with him. You've risen with him. You've been baptized in the spirit and now you have been given the ministry of reconciliation that is to reconcile people to God. That's your future purpose. You have past memory. And if you were raised with a background that is not praiseworthy, an ancestry that's not praiseworthy like the Australians 
because a lot of Australia was settled by criminals, then you have an identity of what God delivered you out of gloriously and changed and made your life worthwhile from a background that wasn't great because you define your identity by your testimony. Sartre was wrong. You have an identity from God. It's substantial. It's glorious. And if you could understand who you are in Jesus and who Jesus is in you and who you are as part of the church and who you are as connected to Israel, you will have an identity that will be able to stand in the storms of life and you will go through it with victory and courage because you have an identity that's stronger than anybody else out there who hasn't come to know Jesus. Isn't this amazing? Wow. And this is why the Bible is always encouraging us to live out of the strength of our identity in him. To walk in it. To walk in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit who connects you to Christ and you, the hope of glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we find ourselves healed when we understand who we are in Messiah and who he is in us. And we find ourselves rejoicing and thrilled to know that you've taken us out of a wild olive tree and grafted us into this olive tree that we are a foreshadowing people of the age to come when all nations will come to the knowledge of God. We submit ourselves to you today. And now let the Lord work in your hearts for a moment. Let him encourage you. Holy Spirit, come and encourage your people as to who they are. Wow, what a rich heritage is ours and what an extraordinary purpose we have if we can just believe fully how much God loves us. In Yeshua's name, amen.